Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Imagine you're a young adult who survived the influenza pandemic of 1918. You got sick, but you only developed mild illness, and you made a complete recovery. 20 years later, while eating at the dinner table, you drop your fork, and you are unable to ever pick it up again. Your loved ones take you to doctors, specialists, psychiatrists, who are all baffled by your symptoms. You are conscious and aware, but unable to move or speak. You overhear the doctors talking about your diagnosis in the other room. Encephalitis? Lethargica. You can hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Welcome Hillary, back. Hillary, we freaking made it. <laughs> You're right. Episode seven is statistically a make or break point for new podcasts. It is. Yeah. Most theories do not make it to their seventh episode. And here we are. Amazing. I'm thrilled. Yeah. Welcome back. Keep them coming. We're going to keep doing three more episodes this season, and then we're going to take a little break for the summer. Yeah. We're going to enjoy some holidays and not be recording every week. And then we are going to be, we have already have ideas for next season. So I think it's going to be really good. Yes. So after four weeks off or so over the summer, we'll be able to refresh and recharge and come back again with even more content for you. But we still have three more episodes. So stay tuned for three more weeks after this episode. We're going to go all the way to episode 10. And as we alluded in the past episode 10, we've been working on the whole season and it's going to be a good one. All leads up to that. Yes. But today I want to do something a little bit different again. Now, sadly, We have not continued the format we had last week where Emma and I were face-to-face. We're back on the Zoom calls. We're in our respective bedrooms again. I'm actually on my lunch break right now, so. (laughs) I miss you. (laughs) I miss you too. So I am going to be presenting Emma with a little bit of a case from medical history today. And we're going to be getting her reaction live to this strange, rare, and unusual disorder. I'm very excited to hear about this. Okay. So what if I told you a hundred years ago, there was a global pandemic and it spread throughout the world and it affected more than 5 million people. Additionally, it killed almost a million people. And many of the survivors were left requiring full-time care. Are you sure you're not talking about the current pandemic? (laughs) The current pandemic has killed many more people, I think. No, but you are right in recognizing that there was a pandemic at the time. 
you might be thinking about influenza of 1918, which killed, yeah, like 500 million people. I remember like it was yesterday. It's like yesterday. We are uh, in 2021. Now I feel like the whole world is more of a pandemic expert than they were in the past. And although the pandemic I'm talking about today occurred during the same time frame, it was a completely different disease. Have you heard of it? I have not, but tell me more. Okay. So this disease spread across the globe and many survivors were left unable to move or speak, but they were conscious and aware. Some seemed to make a complete recovery from their initial illness and they even returned to their normal lives. However, the majority then went on to develop neurological or psychiatric disorders, often after years or even decades of seemingly perfect health. That sounds terrible. No cure and no cause was ever found, and it mostly disappeared by 1926. Ooh, what is it? So at the time, it was called encephalitis lethargica, or sleeping sickness. Oh, yeah. Now it sounds more familiar? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I should note, there is another kind of, quote, sleeping sickness caused by the tsetse fly in Africa. That's a whole other disease that we won't be discussing today. I just want to make sure there's no confusion. Okay, that's what I was thinking of then. That's what I was thinking of. So not that type of sleeping sickness. This was a pandemic that lasted roughly between 1915, 1916, and 1926. So 10 years, and then it disappeared. Interesting. Yeah. So what causes it? Well, we don't know. Uh, The best guess that scientists have is that it's an autoimmune response triggered after a bacterial or maybe a viral infection. Okay. As we kind of already talked about, it seems coincidental that it happened at the same time as that influenza pandemic of 1918. And it also affected a similar population, these sort of younger, mostly healthy adults, age 12 to 35. Very interesting. Yeah. The term encephalitis lethargica was first coined by a doctor, get ready for this name, Constantine von Economo. And you might have actually heard of him before if you ever studied neurology, because he actually has a neuron named after him, the von Economo neuron. Not familiar, but... I blacked out. Obscure neurology is not the uh, flavor of this podcast. It just happens to be this episode. (laughs) Um, So he first described this condition. He was an Austrian psychiatrist and neurologist. And if you can imagine, let me paint a picture for you. He was a doctor in Vienna during World War I. So you can imagine the type of war wounds he is seeing day to day. I'm sure there was quite a few. Yeah, exactly. It was a gruesome scene in 1918 in Vienna. So he started to realize a pattern in some of these patients that would come in. And they weren't war wounded. They were more psychologically disturbed or doing a lot more sleeping than they should be, or alternatively, doing a lot less sleeping than they should be. That's interesting as sleep is one of my favorite topics to (laughs) discuss and tell my patients about. So really cool that you mentioned that. 
Well, if we think about the name encephalitis lethargica, encephalitis literally means inflammation of the brain and lethargica comes from lethargy or reduced movement. So that's really what we're talking about here. And actually, I want to give you a quick pop culture reference. Now, Emma, my lovely younger sister, you're probably too young to remember this movie or this book, but the British neurologist Oliver Sacks wrote a book called Awakening. And this was really a memoir chronicling his efforts in the late 1960s to help encephalitis lethargica patients at the Beth Abraham Hospital in New York. So these are the patients who, as I mentioned earlier, got sick, then recovered, and then fell sick again many years later. And seriously Mm -hmm. sick, like so sick they required admittance to a psychiatric ward. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I'll read you a little bit from his book uh, about these encephalitis lethargica patients. He wrote, they would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake. They would sit motionless and speechless all day in their chairs totally lacking energy, impetus, initiative, motive, appetite, affect, or any desire. They registered what went on around them without active attention and with profound indifference. They neither conveyed nor felt the feeling of life. They were as insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. Were they in a coma? Kind of. So... A lot of them would be able to sit up, for instance, but not respond to external stimuli. They would just sit and stare forever until a care aide moved them. Imagine being a care aide or a nurse or that how creepy that would be and like disturbing at the same time. Yes. And at the time, there was not this understanding about comatose patients that perhaps they can mentally understand what's happening around them, even though they can't physically respond. And there was a major shift by these doctors who were witnessing these patients in the hospital at the time, realizing that, hey, this person isn't completely out of it. They are still consciously aware of what's going on around them. They just are unable to respond. Which I think would make it so much worse. Like, yeah, no kidding. But I think it's also really important to remember that this was 1960. And I mean, that still ha- that still can happen. However, like the understanding of, I mean, medicine and everything has evolved so much. Definitely. And this is one of those instances where there was a major shift in how we treated comatose like patients. And we started to realize like, hey, you can't just talk in front of this person, like as if they're not there because they are there. And even if they can't engage actively all the time, you can't predict what stimulus is going to break through and what they're going to hear or remember or hold on to. So you should be treating that patient like you would any other patient with dignity and respect. And people wake up from coma suddenly all the time. Mm. So that's really important as, I mean, nurses, physicians, anyone who is doing that, mm-hmm. that you're not spilling your dirty secrets to your colleague in this <laughs> patient's room or shit talking the other doctors or, you know, yeah. they will, they could potentially hear, remember, and yeah. know everything about you. Yeah. And not only that, but also like belittling them or talking about their treatment, like they're not there, or somehow like downplaying their prognosis and not giving them the same hope that you might give an otherwise conscious patient. Totally. Okay. Now I have another question for you. Mm-hmm. What do Robin Williams, Robert De Niro, and a Ouija board have in common? 
I don't know. They seem like very obscure things. Yes. It is an awesome movie based off of Sack's memoir, also titled Awakenings. And warning, if you're in the mood for some serious feels and emotions, this is the movie for you. Uh, But if you're looking for a light, fun, upbeat movie, maybe not the choice for you. Did it make you feel something? It definitely made me feel something. Robin Williams plays a fictional character that is based on Sachs as a neurologist. And the fictional character's name is Dr. Malcolm Sayer. And Sayer works as a psychiatrist on a psych ward with a lot of these recovering encephalitis lethargica patients. And he discovers that certain stimuli will reach beyond the patient's catatonic state. So actions such as catching a ball or hearing familiar music or being called by their name and enjoying human touch all had unique effects on particular patients and a glimpse into their worlds and what it was like to really be locked in by this disease. It also follows Robert De Niro's character, who's a fictional patient named Leonard, who seems to remain removed, but Sayer manages to figure out that he can communicate with him by using a Ouija board. Oh, that's creepy. I've always been really (laughs) weirded out by those. Yeah. So imagine a completely otherwise catatonic patient having a conversation with you with a Ouija board. I don't think I could do it. (laughs) Now, this is a fictional tale. It's based off of Sack's memoir, but it is fictional. And this is a fictional patient. It's not a real case. I've been kind of vague. So I should mention what are the symptoms of encephalitis lethargica? And it really is a neuropsychiatric condition, meaning it has both neurological and psychiatric components. And in the early stages, it really looks almost infectious. So there's these sort of nonspecific symptoms like a high fever, sore throat, headaches, and extreme lethargy, hence the name lethargica. Unfortunately, this disease continues into developing double vision and what's called an oculogyric crisis. And this is upward gaze of the eyes. So it's where someone's like literally staring up, off and up, for long extended periods of time does not move their eyes, just an upward gaze. It also included things like delayed physical and mental responses and Parkinsonism. If you ever know anyone afflicted with Parkinson's disease, you'll recognize the sort of tremors, muscle rigidity, trouble initiating movements, and that sort of mask-like facial expression. Um, It really shared a lot of symptoms with Parkinsonism in this stage of the disease. Moreover, the movie is really based on these post-encephalitic syndromes where a person seems to recover fully from their initial illness and then develop these symptoms years or decades later for really an unknown cause. So they got sick, they got better, and then way later in life, all of a sudden they develop these severe catatonic-like states. And that's what the movie is chronicling, these patients who are living in a psych ward because of this catatonic state. Imagine like thinking you you get this illness, you recover, mm-hmm. and then like 30 years later, getting sick again and being able to link it back, that, that would be terrible. Yeah, just absolutely terrifying, like knowing what was to come, especially if you're on a floor with other people who have the same condition and seeing what's going to happen. And I think it's, I think it's one thing to get an illness and have mm-hmm. it know that it's a long drawn out, you know, you're, you have a decent prognosis, but you're going to deal with this. I think of like HIV turning into AIDS and that Mm, kind of thing. mm, mm -hmm. You, you have it, you're not going to get rid of it. It's, you know, continuous throughout your life, but then it's like that hope of getting better and being good for so long. And then for it to come back, I think would be the hardest part. 
Yeah. Yeah. But also, right. would you even know because you're in this sort of psychosis yeah. base, right? Are you yeah. even aware of what's happening to you? Yeah. And some of the psychosis was very extreme. Like some of the case reports I was reading, you know, like patients would gouge their eyes out due to bouts of oh, psychosis. God. Yeah. Yeah. So very extreme. This is not, um, this is not a, a mild condition. This is a condition that can lead to death. Yeah. That makes me cringe. Yeah. So how did the doctors diagnose it? Well, like many rare diseases, it was a diagnosis of exclusion. So all other cases of encephalitis had to be ruled out and there's no gold standard diagnostic test or blood test or anything really that shows or tells us definitively this is encephalitis lethargica, mainly because we still don't know what causes it. So it's hard to test for something when you don't know what you're looking for. Very fair. And I hate diagnosis of exclusion. Yes. It's a lot of work for doctors, making <laughs> sure you chase down every single possible cause for what could explain this person's symptoms. And after all that work, not having anything concrete to tell the family either, or the patient, if they're still able to comprehend their own prognosis and diagnosis. And also just dating back to the sixties when mm. diagnostic tools and mm what we use nowadays to test people through labs, imaging, all right. sorts of things like that are so easily available to us now. Mm. Definitely we're not back then. So I can imagine just being that much more difficult and more right. frustrating. Yeah. So how do you treat encephalitis lethargica? Well, as I mentioned, a lot of the symptoms are really similar to Parkinson's disease. And good news for these patients is one of the main treatments for Parkinson's disease also seemed to help with encephalitis lethargica. You might've heard of it before. It's called L-DOPA. I was just going to say L-DOPA. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about L-DOPA a little bit and how it works. So generally, as I mentioned, this drug is for Parkinsonism or Parkinson's disease which is a movement disorder where dopamine producing neurons in the substantia nigra are progressively degenerated. This leads to reduced dopamine because the substantia nigra actually works in part of the basal ganglia and the motor cortex to control movements. This decrease in dopamine leads to a decrease in signaling. And this miscommunication here leads to a wide range of movement symptoms many like the ones we have talked about encephalitis lethargica. So if it is a destruction of dopamine producing neurons in a specific area of the brain, logically, it makes sense. If we can just give the person more dopamine, we're going to fix their symptoms, mm -hmm. right? You'd think. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, dopamine doesn't cross the blood brain barrier to get it where we need it to be in the substantia nigra. So levodopa, also known as L-DOPA, is given as it does cross. And once it crosses into the brain, it can be converted into dopamine to stimulate those remaining substantia nigra neurons to improve the motor symptoms. Right. So back to the movie. After attending a lecture at a conference on levodopa and its success with patients suffering from Parkinson's disease, because of course in the 60s, this was a new treatment for a new and emerging treatment for Parkinson's disease. Very exciting for doctors. Yes. So Dr. Sayer believes that the drug may offer a breakthrough for his own group of encephalitis lethargica patients. After a trial run with Leonard yields 
astonishing results where Leonard completely, quote, awakens from his catatonic state, hence the name Awakenings for the book and the movie. This success inspires Sayer to ask for funding from donors so that all the catatonic patients can receive the L-DOPA medication and gain awakenings to reality and the present. So really monumental part of the movie and part of time, an era and time where these otherwise catatonic patients were literally woken up and they became their former selves once again. That's amazing that just one small drug discovery or use of a drug off label or, um, sort of, you know, not what it was originally researched to do can make such a profound difference. Yeah. And like you said, just getting more research, like understanding how the substantia nigra works in the basal ganglia to control movement and realizing that dopamine is the problem. And okay, if dopamine is the problem, let's give more and we'll see if we can fix it. And then imagine having these amazing results. And these amazing results were happening in Parkinson's disease too, where people who had severe motor impairment, who really couldn't walk or have any facial expressions, all of a sudden were getting their lives back after years of progressive disease. So if L-DOPA made such a difference in Parkinson's disease then, why is it now that Parkinson's is so progressive and L-DOPA cannot stop the disease progression? Yeah. So here's why the movie is so sad. Uh Uh-oh. Once those substantia nigra neurons are gone, no amount of dopamine can stimulate anything. Yeah. And that is true for Parkinson's patients, as well as encephalitis lethargica patients. The L-DOPA is replacing the missing dopamine, but the substantia nigra neurons are still being degenerated. That's so unfortunate. About almost exactly three years ago, my grandfather actually passed away from Parkinson's disease. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. The timing of this is Mm. quite perfect. Well, although encephalitis lethargica is very rare and we haven't seen cases for it, cases of it in many years. Parkinson's disease is very common. Very. And I'll read you a little bit more of the plot from the movie. I should have warned you guys that there were spoilers here. There are spoilers about this movie. This movie is from like the nineties. If I can't help you if you're spoiled by this movie. Okay. I like how you, I like how you add the disclaimer halfway through. (laughs) I forgot. Okay. It's an old movie. There shouldn't be spoilers required for an old movie. Also, I'm emotionally preparing you for this movie because it is very intense. So while Dr. Sayer and the hospital staff are thrilled by the initial success of L-DOPA with his group of patients, they very soon learn that this is a temporary result. As the first to awaken, Leonard is also the first to demonstrate the limited duration of this awakening period. Leonard begins to develop tics and muscle control issues, and he starts to shuffle more as he walks. And all of the other patients on the floor are forced to witness what will eventually happen to them as well. Eventually, he soon begins to suffer full body spasms. He can hardly move. And eventually, he slips back into his catatonic state. Mm, Poor Leonard. Oh, the feels in that movie. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit about pop culture and encephalitis lethargica. I want to talk a little bit more about a case now, obviously, because these cases were happening back in 1920s. I don't have a current case for you, but I want to give you more of a historical excerpt from a German neurologist named Felix Stern. And he examined hundreds of encephalitis lethargica patients during the 1920s. He noted that their encephalitis lethargica typically evolved over time and that their early symptoms would be dominated by sleepiness or wakefulness. So it was one or the other, either 
sleeping for inappropriate amounts of times or staying awake for inappropriate amounts of times. The next symptom would be that oculogyric crisis where the person would just stare off upward into space for hours, days, weeks on end. And the third symptom would be recovery where there was a brief period of an awakening where the patient seemed to be better followed by this Parkinson-like syndrome. If patients of Stern followed this course of disease, he diagnosed them with encephalitis lethargica. As we mentioned, there's no diagnostic standard, but if he saw those three things in a row, he felt confident giving them that diagnosis. Here's a quote from Stern's 1920 book. Anyone who has seen a number of cases of encephalitis is initially surprised at the diversity of the symptoms, as well as the possibilities for development and process of the disease. But on closer inspection, you can see that there is no chaos in this diversity either. In the great majority of all cases of chronic encephalitis, as will be statistically shown later, the development can be clearly traced after and from the acute phase. The regularities and the directional tendency of the overall course of encephalitis can only be recognized after a long course of the disease. Oh, yeah. So pretty tragic in the 1920s if you had this diagnosis, truly. Truly. I also feel like in the 20s, though, there were so many things that happened. I mean, er early 1900s in general, Mm. like so many of these diseases, there was no vaccines, there was no cures, medicine wasn't advanced. So Mm. like this was at the time, as tragic as it was, that was the norm. Yeah, people got sick with anything and they died. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I definitely appreciate advancements in modern medicine living in 2021 for sure. Yeah. And actually bringing it to 2021, let's talk a little bit about what encephalitis lethargica looks like today. So since 1940, there have been around 80 published case reports of encephalitis lethargica worldwide. However, because there is no diagnostic criteria, the reliability of these diagnoses is limited. Mm. However, We did, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, just live through another global pandemic, COVID-19. We're still in it. Yeah, for many people, we are still very much in it. Luckily for us here in Western Canada, we are both double vaxxed and things are starting to get back to normal. Things are opening. We have the luxury of vaccines, like you said, Um, It wasn't available in the past. Now it is. I never contracted COVID-19. I feel very protected and very safe and privileged to know that I've been double vaxxed. I will second that fully. I also never contracted COVID-19, but I also didn't leave my house for a year. So Mm. (laughs) we were hermits. Um, I do know a few people who did. Mm. Um, It's terrible. You know, there's so much data out there about long-term effects too now that people are receiving who have had it a year, year and a half ago. Um, But I just feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to have both vaccines. I'm so glad you brought up long-term COVID or what sometimes in the medical field is called post-viral syndromes. So after a viral illness, the inability of the body to fully recover for an unknown reason. So I wanna talk about another case. It involves a 60 year old male physician with a history of recent recovered COVID-19 infection. So he presented with neuropsychiatric complaints, including an altered mental status, Perservation, which is getting stuck on a topic or behavior, like the inability to move on from a specific topic or behavior. Disinhibition, 
word finding difficulty and worsening paranoia. Uh, when the doctors did a physical exam, they found information consistent with constructional apraxia, which is basically the inability to draw or assemble objects. Like if you, the classic example being like draw a clock and the clock not being drawn appropriately. And I do encourage you to Google examples of these things because it's very fascinating to see what the brain can come up with in these different states. He also displayed a kinetic mutism, which is not speaking or moving. Bradykinesia, also known as slowed movements, like we talked about in Parkinson's disease. He had severely impaired and delayed recall and difficult with complex tasks and multi-step commands. Detailed neurocognitive testing was really consistent with severe executive dysfunction. So this, this doctor was severely affected after his COVID-19 illness. They did a PET scan on his brain. And it showed areas that suggest an early pattern of autoimmune encephalitis, which is, again, the thought that perhaps a viral illness triggered an autoimmune response, which triggered the encephalitis or the inflammation of the brain. Now, this doctor, this patient did receive treatment of intravenous immunoglobulins or IVIG, and he had marked improvement. Um, not only in his neurocognitive testing, but also on repeat PET scanning, he did get better, but sort of the moral of this story is there should be a high suspicion of autoimmune encephalitis following COVID-19 infection in any patients that's presenting with a combination of neurological and psychiatric symptoms, especially following recovery of an acute phase of an infection. This idea of post-viral syndrome is a huge concern. And I think over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, much like the doctors learned a lot about encephalitis lethargica after the 1918 flu, I think we might learn a lot more about autoimmune encephalitis now following the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's definitely information and research that I want to keep up on and stay on top of because I'm very curious to see what we find out. Thank you for sharing that. That was a really great intro and little tidbit because I feel like I mean, it's really interesting to see research that is current and mm. constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. So like with COVID-19, I mean, it's going to be going on for the next five, 10 years. So it'll be really interesting to follow that and see this post-viral syndrome in these patients who were affected and also sort of do more studies. What I'm interested in is comparing severity of the illness at the time of contraction and, um, you know, that positive result mm. to the um, long-term effects and also comparing it to those who are vaccinated. I mean, we already know that vaccination decreases your risk of ho hospitalization um, and decreases your risk of being on a ventilator. Yeah, so it'll be really people who are vaccinated who still get COVID to see if they still have that post-viral syndrome or if that vaccine is effective with that. Yeah. And I have to admit, it is a little scary to think that you could be a person who got COVID. It was just mild. You recovered and you're fine. And 30 years from now, maybe you can be affected. For sure. And I should also mention, like, I'm trying, I'm not trying to be like, ooh, scary about COVID. It's not just COVID. It's really any viral illness. Like influenza is still a major problem in our world too. And that can also cause post-viral syndromes. So moral of the story is, protect yourself against viral disease. And the best way to do that is with good hand hygiene, maybe wearing a mask when you're inside during flu seasons, getting your flu shot, getting your appropriate vaccines and appreciating what modern medicine is doing for us to keep us safe. Absolutely. That is a great ending to this to just take care of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, that whole as much as it's so basic, but that eating healthy, mm-hmm. exercising, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining your immune system health is just so important. And yes. And not just good for you, but good for those around you. Very true. Well, thank you again for tuning in for another exciting episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast, episode seven, the episode where we say we made it. We made it. (laughs) So stay tuned next week where we have another new topic for you, episode eight. I want to keep it a secret because you know I want you guys to tune back in. But please don't forget, if you have episode ideas, we are currently working on our schedule for season two, and we are looking for guests topic ideas. Really, we want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. You guys have great stories, great insight. So please keep the conversation going. You can email us at probablynotlupus at gmail.com. We have a website as well. Visit our Instagram, wherever you like. Reach out. Okay. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify. Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Probably Not Lupus. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. (laughs) I love that.